Chapter 4, Part 5 of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1 by Charles McKay. The Alchemists, Part 5 Inferior Adepts of the 14th and 15th Centuries Many other pretenders to the secrets of the Philosopher's Stone appeared in every country in Europe during the 14th and 15th centuries. The possibility of transmutation was so generally admitted that every chemist was more or less an alchemist. Germany, Holland, Italy, Spain, Poland, France and England produced thousands of obscure adepts who supported themselves in the pursuit of their chimera by the more profitable resources of astrology and divination. The monarchs of Europe were no less persuaded than their subjects of the possibility of discovering the Philosopher's Stone. Henry VI and Edward IV of England encouraged alchemy. In Germany, the emperors Maximilian, Rudolf and Frederick II devoted much of their attention to it, and every inferior potentate within their dominos imitated their example. It was a common practice in Germany among the nobles and petty sovereigns to invite an alchemist to take up his residence among them, that they might confine him in a dungeon till he made gold enough to pay millions for his ransom. Many poor wretches suffered perpetual imprisonment in consequence. A similar fate appears to have been intended by Edward II for Raymond Lully, who, upon the pretense that he was thereby honoured, was accommodated with apartments in the Tower of London. He found out in time the trick that was about to be played him, and managed to make his escape, some of his biographers say, by jumping into the themes and swimming to a vessel that lay waiting to receive him. In the 16th century, the same system was pursued, as will be shown more fully in the life of Seton the Cosmopolite. The following is a catalogue of the chief authors upon alchemy, who flourished during this epoch and whose lives and adventures are either unknown or are unworthy of more detailed notice. John Dunstan, an Englishman, lived in 1315 and wrote two treatises on the Philosopher's Stone. Richard, or as some call him Robert, also an Englishman, lived in 1330 and wrote a work entitled Correctorium Alchemiae, which was much esteemed till the time of Paracelsus. In the same year lived Peter of Lombardy, who wrote what he called a complete treatise upon the hermetic science, an abridgment of which was afterwards published by Lacini, a monk of Calabria. 
In 1330, the most famous alchemist of Paris was one Odomar, whose work, the Practica Magistri, was for a long time a handbook among the brethren of the science. John de Rupechissa, a French monk of the order of Saint Francis, flourished in 1357 and pretended to be a prophet as well as an alchemist. Some of his prophecies were so disagreeable to Pope Innocent VI that the pontiff determined to put a stop to them by locking up the prophet in the dungeons of the Vatican. It is generally believed that he died there, though there is no evidence of the fact. His chief works are The Book of Light, The Five Senses, The Heaven of Philosophers, and his grand work the Confectione Lapidis. He was not thought a shining light among the adepts. Ortholani was another pretender of whom nothing is known but that he exercised the arts of alchemy and astrology at Paris shortly before the time of Nicolas Flamel. His work on the practice of alchemy was written in that city in 1358. Isaac of Holland wrote, it is supposed, about this time, and his son also devoted himself to the science. Nothing worth repeating is known of their lives. Boerhaave speaks with commendation of many passages in their works, and Paracelsus esteemed them highly. The chief are the Triplici Ordine Elixiris et Lapidis Theoria, printed at Bern in 1608, and Mineralia Opera, Seu de Lapide Philosophico, printed at Middleburg in 1600. They also wrote eight other works upon the same subject. Kofsky, a Pole, wrote an alchemical treatise entitled The Tincture of Minerals about the year 1488. In this list of authors, a royal name must not be forgotten. Charles VI of France, one of the most credulous princes of the day, whose court absolutely swarmed with alchemists, conjurers, astrologers and quacks of every description, made several attempts to discover the philosopher's stone, and thought he knew so much about it that he determined to enlighten the world with a treatise. It is called the royal work of Charles VI of France and the treasure of philosophy. It is said to be the original from which Nicolas Flamel took the idea of his Désir Désiré. Langlet du Fresnoy says it is very allegorical and utterly incomprehensible. For a more complete list of the hermetic philosophers of the 14th and 15th centuries, the reader is referred to the third volume of Langlet's history, already quoted. Progress of the infatuation during the 16th and 17th centuries Present state of the science during the 16th and 17th centuries, the search for the philosopher's stone was continued by thousands of enthusiastic and the credulous. But a great change was introduced during this period. The eminent men, 
who devoted themselves to the study totally changed its aspect and referred to the possession of the wondrous stone and elixir not only the conversion of the base into the precious metal but the solution of all the difficulties of other sciences they pretended that by its means man would be brought into closer communion with its maker that disease and sorrow would be banished from the world and that the millions of spiritual beings who walk the earth unseen would be rendered visible and become the friends companions and instructors of mankind in the seventeenth century more especially these poetical and fantastic doctrines excited the notice of europe and from germany where they had been first disseminated by rosencruz spread into france and england and ran away with the sound judgment of many clever but too enthusiastic searchers for the truth paracelsus d and many others of less note were captivated by the grace and beauty of the new mythology which was arising to adorn the literature of europe most of the alchemists of the sixteenth century although ignorant of the rosicrucians as a sect were in some degree tinctured with their fanciful tenets but before we speak more fully of these poetical visionaries it will be necessary to resume the history of the hermetic folly and a trace of the gradual change that stole over the dreams of the adepts it will be seen that the infatuation increased rather than diminished as the world grew older augurello among the alchemists who were born in the fifteenth and distinguished themselves in the sixteenth century the first in point of date is john aurelio augurello he was born at rimini in 1441 and became professor of the belles lettres at venice and trevisa he was early convinced of the truth of the hermetic science and used to pray to god that he might be happy enough to discover the philosopher's stone he was continually surrounded by the paraphernalia of chemistry and expanded all his wealth in the purchase of drugs and metals he was also a poet but of less merit than pretentious his chrysopeia in which he pretended to teach the art of making gold he dedicated to pope leo x in the hope that the pontiff would reward him handsomely for the compliment but the pope was too good a judge of poetry to be pleased with the worse than the mediocrity of his poem and too good a philosopher to approve of the strange doctrines which it inculcated he was therefore far from gratified at the dedication it is said that when augurello applied to him for a reward the pope with great ceremony and much apparent kindness and cordiality drew an empty purse from his pocket and presented it to the alchemist saying that since he was able to make gold the most appropriate present that could be made him was a purse to put it in this curvy reward was all that the poor alchemist ever got either for his poetry or his alchemy he died in a state of extreme poverty in the eighty-third year of his age cornelius agrippa this alchemist has left a distinguished reputation 
the most extraordinary tales were told and believed of his powers. He could turn iron into gold by his mere word. All the spirits of the air and demons of the earth were under his command and bound to obey him in everything. He could raise from the dead the forms of the great men of other days and make them appear in their habit as they lived to the gaze of the curious who had courage enough to abide their presence. He was born at Cologne in 1486 and began at an early age the study of chemistry and philosophy. By some means or other, which have never been very clearly explained, he managed to impress his contemporaries with a great idea of his wonderful attainments. At the early age of twenty, so great was his reputation as an alchemist that the principal adepts of Paris wrote to Cologne, inviting him to settle in France and aid them with his experience in discovering the philosopher's stone. Honours poured upon him in thick succession, and he was highly esteemed by all the learned men of his time. Melanchthon speaks of him with respect and commendation. Erasmus also bears testimony in his favour, and the general voice of his age proclaimed him a light of literature and an old man to philosophy. Some men, by dint of excessive egotism, manage to persuade their contemporaries that they are very great men indeed. They publish their acquirements so loudly in people's ears, and keep up their own praises so incessantly, that the world's applause is actually taken by storm. Such seems to have been the case with Agrippa. He called himself a sublime theologian, an excellent jurisconsult and an able physician, a great philosopher and a successful alchemist. The world at last took him at his word, and thought that a man who talks so big must have some merit to recommend him. That he was, indeed, a great trumpet which sounded so obstreperous at last. He was made secretary to the Emperor Maximilian, who conferred upon him the title of Chevalier, and gave him the honorary command of regiment. He afterwards became professor of Hebrew and the Belles Lettres at the University of Dole in France, but quarrelling with the Franciscan monks upon some knotty points of divinity, he was obliged to quit the town. He took refuge in London, where he taught Hebrew and cast nativities for about a year. From London he proceeded to Pavia and gave lectures upon the writings, real or supposed, of Hermes Trismegistus, and might have lived there in peace and honour had he not again quarrelled with the clergy. By their means his position became so disagreeable that he was glad to accept an offer made him by the magistracy of Metz to become the syndic and advocate general. Here again his love of disputation made him enemies. The theological wiseacres of that city asserted that Saint Anne had three husbands, in which opinion they were confirmed by the popular belief of the day. Agrippa needlessly ran foul of this opinion, or prejudice as he called it, and thereby lost much of his influence. 
Another dispute more creditable to his character occurred soon after and sank him forever in the estimation of the medicines. Humanly taking the part of a young girl who was accused of witchcraft, his enemies asserted that he was himself a sorcerer and raised such a storm over his head that he was forced to fly the city. After this he became physician to Louisa de Savoy, mother of King Francis I. This lady was curious to know the future and required her physician to cast her nativity. Agrippa replied that he would not encourage such idle curiosity. The result was he lost her confidence and was forthwith dismissed. If it had been through his belief in the worthlessness of astrology that he made his answer, we might admire his honest and fearless independence. But when it is known that, at the very same time, he was in the constant habit of divination and fortune-telling, and that he was predicting splendid success in all his undertakings to the constable of Bourbon, we can only wonder at his thus estranging a powerful friend through mere petulance and perversity. He was about this time invited both by Henry the Eighth of England and Margaret of Austria, governess of the Low Countries, to fix his residence in their dominus. He chose the service of the latter, by whose influence he was made historiographer to the Emperor Charles V. Unfortunately for Agrippa, he never had stability enough to remain long in one position, and offended his patrons by his relentless and presumption. After the death of Margaret he was imprisoned at Brussels on a charge of sorcery. He was released after a year, and quitting the country experienced many vicissitudes. He died in great poverty in 1534, aged 48 years. While in the service of Margaret of Austria, he resided principally at Lovien, in which city he wrote his famous work on the vanity and nothingness of human knowledge. He also wrote to please his royal mistress a treatise upon the superiority of the female sex, which he dedicated to her in token of his gratitude for the favours she had heaped upon him. The reputation he left behind him in these provinces was anything but favourable. A great number of the marvellous tales that are told of him relate to this period of his life. It was said that the gold which he paid to the traders with whom he dealt always looked remarkably bright, but invariably turned into pieces of slate and stone in the course of four and twenty hours. Of this purest gold, he was believed to have made large quantities by the aid of the devil, who, it would appear from this, had but a very superficial knowledge of alchemy, and much less than the Marquis de Reyes gave him credit for. The Jesuit Delirio, in his book on magic and sorcery, relates a still more extraordinary story of him. One day, Agrippa, left his house at Luvian, and intending to be absent for some time, gave the key of his study to his wife, with strict orders that no one should enter it during his absence. The lady herself, strange as it may appear, had no curiosity to pry into her husband's secrets, 
and never once thought of entering the forbidden room but a young student who had been accommodated with an attic in the philosopher's house burned with a fierce desire to examine the study hoping perchance that he might purloin some book or implement which would instruct him in the art of transmuting metals the youth being handsome eloquent and above all highly complimentary to the charms of the lady she was persuaded without much difficulty to hand him the key but gave him strict orders not to remove anything the student promised implicit obedience and entered agrippa's study the first object that caught his attention was a large grimoire or book of spells which lay open on the philosopher's desk he sat himself down immediately and began to read at the first word he uttered he fancied he heard a knock at the door he listened but all was silent thinking that his imagination had deceived him he read on when immediately a louder knock was heard which so terrified him that he started to his feet he tried to say come in but his tongue refused its office and he could not articulate a sound he fixed his eyes upon the door which slowly opening disclosed a stranger of majestic form by scowling features who demanded sternly why he was summoned i did not summon you said the trembling student you did said the stranger advancing angrily and the demons are not to be invoked in vain the student could make no reply and the demon enraged that one of the uninitiated should have summoned him out of mere presumption seized him by the throat and strangled him when agrippa returned a few days afterwards he found his house beset with devils some of them were sitting on the chimney pots kicking up their legs in the air while others were playing at leapfrog on the very edge of the parapet his study was so filled with them that he found it difficult to make his way to his desk when at last he had elbowed his way through them he found his book open and the student lying dead upon the floor he saw immediately how the mischief had been done and dismissing all the inferior imps asked the principal demon how he could have been so rash as to kill the young man the demon replied that he had been needlessly invoked by an insulting youth and could do no less than kill him for his presumption agrippa reprimanded him severely and ordered him immediately to reanimate the dead body and walk about with it in the market-place for the whole of the afternoon the demon did so the student revived and putting his arm through that of his unearthly murderer walked very lovingly with him in sight of all the people at sunset the body fell down again cold and lifeless as before and was carried by the crowd to the hospital it being the general opinion that he had expired in a fit of apoplexy his conductor immediately disappeared when the body was examined marks of strangulation were found on the neck and prints of the long claws of the demon on various parts of it these appearances together with a story which soon obtained currency 
that the companion of the young man had vanished in a cloud of flame and smoke opened people's eyes to the truth the magistrates of Luvian instituted inquiries and the result was that agrippa was obliged to quit the town other authors besides the livrio relate similar stories of this philosopher the world in those days was always willing enough to believe in tales of magic and sorcery and when as in agrippa's case the alleged magician gave himself out for such and claimed credit for the wonders he worked it is not surprising that the age should have allowed his pretensions it was dangerous boasting which sometimes led to the stake or the gallows and therefore was thought to be not without foundation paulus jovius in his eulogia doctorum virorum says that the devil in the shape of a large black dog attended agrippa wherever he went thomas nash in his adventures of jack wilton relates that at the request of lord surrey erasmus and some other learned men agrippa called up from the grave many of the great philosophers of antiquity among others tully whom he caused to re-deliver his celebrated oration for oscus he also showed lord surrey when in germany an exact resemblance in a glass of his mistress the fair geraldine she was represented on a couch weeping for the absence of her lover lord surrey made a note of the exact time at which he saw this vision and ascertained afterwards that his mistress was actually so employed at the very minute to thomas lord cromwell agrippa represented king harry the eighth hunting in wisdor park with the principal lords of his court and to please the emperor charles v he summoned king david and king solomon from the tomb now they in his apology for the great man who had been falsely suspected of magic takes a great deal of pains to clear agrippa from the imputation cast upon him by delirio post jominus and other such ignorant prejudiced scribblers such stories demanded the refutation in the days of naude but they may now be safely left to decay in their own absurdity that they should have attached to however to the memory of a man who claimed the power of making iron obeying him when he told it to become gold and who wrote such a work as that upon magic which goes by his name is not at all surprising paracelsus this philosopher called by naudet the zenith and rising sun of all the alchemists was born at Einsiedeln, near zurich in the year of fourteen ninety three his true name was hoenim to which as he himself informs us were prefixed the baptismal names of aurelius theoprastus bombastus paracelsus the last of these he chose for his common designation while he was yet a boy and rendered it before he died one of the most famous in the annals of his time his father who was a physician educated his son for the same pursuit the latter was an apt scholar and made great progress by chance the work of isaac hollandus fell into his hands and from that time he became smitten with the mania of the philosopher's stone all his thoughts henceforth 
were devoted to metallurgy, and he travelled into Sweden that he might visit the mines of that country, and examine the ores while they yet lay in the bowels of the earth. He also visited Rithemis at the monastery of Spanheim, and obtained instruction from him in the science of alchemy. Continuing his travels, he proceeds through Prussia and Austria into Turkey, Egypt and Tartary, and thence, returning to Constantinople, learned, as he boasted, the art of transmutation, and became possessed of the elixir vitae. He then established himself as a physician in his native Switzerland at Zurich, and commenced writing works upon alchemy and medicine, which immediately fixed the attention of Europe. Their great obscurity was no impediment to their fame, for the less the author was understood, the more the demonologists, fanatics, and philosophers' stone hunters seemed to appreciate him. His fame as a physician kept pace with that which he enjoyed as an alchemist, owing to his having effected some happy cures by means of mercury and opium, drugs unceremoniously condemned by his professional brethren. In the year 1526, he was chosen professor of physics and natural philosophy in the University of Basel, where his lectures attracted vast numbers of students. He denounced the writings of all former physicians as tending to mislead, and publicity burned the works of Galen and Avicenna as quacks and impostors. He exclaimed in presence of the admiring and half-bewildered crowd who assembled to witness the ceremony that there was more knowledge in his shoe-strings than in the writings of these physicians. Continuing the same strain, he said that all the universities in the world were full of ignorant quacks, but that he, Paracelsus, overflowed with wisdom. You will all follow my new system, said he, with furious gesticulations. Avicenna, Galen, Razis, Montagnana, Meme, you will all follow me. Ye professors of Paris, Montpellier, Germany, Cologne, and Vienna, and all ye that dwell on the Rhine and the Danube, ye that inhabit the isles of the sea, and ye also Italians, Dalmatians, Athenians, Arabians, Jews, ye will all follow my doctrines, for I am the monarch of medicine. But he did not long enjoy the esteem of the good citizen of Basel, it is said that he indulged in wine so freely and not unfrequently to be seen in the streets in a state of intoxication. This was ruinous for a physician, and his good fame decreased rapidly. His ill fame increased in still greater proportion, especially when he assumed the airs of a sorcerer. He boasted of the legends of spirits and his command and of one especially which he kept imprisoned in the hilt of his sword. Wetteress, who lived twenty-seven months in his service, relates that he often threatened to invoke a whole army of demons, and show him the great authority which he could exercise over them. He let it be believed that the spirit in his sword had custody of the elixir of life, by means of which he could make any one life to be as old as the antediluvians. He also boasted that he had a spirit at his common, called Azoth, 
whom he kept imprisoned in a jewel, and in many of the old portraits he is represented with a jewel inscribed with the word Azuth in his hand. If a sober prophet has little honor in his own country, a drunken one has still less. Paracelsus found it at last convenient to quit Basel and establish himself in Strasbourg. The immediate cause of his change of residence was as follows. A citizen lay at the point of death and was given over by all the physicians of the town. As a last resource Paracelsus was called in, to whom the sick man promised a magnificent recompense if, by his means, he were cured. Paracelsus gave him two small pills, which the man took and rapidly recovered. When he was quite well, Paracelsus sent for his fee, but the citizen had no great opinion of the value of a cue which had been so speedily effected. He had no notion of paying a handful of gold for two pills, although they have saved his life, and he refused to pay more than the usual fee for a single visit. Paracelsus brought an action against him and lost it. This result so exasperated him that he left Basel in high dungeon. He resumed his wandering life and travelled in Germany and Hungary, supporting himself as he went on the credulity and infatuation of all classes of society. He cast nativities, told fortunes, aided those who had money to throw away upon the experiment to find the philosopher's stone, prescribed remedies for cows and pigs, and aided in the recovery of stolen goods. After residing successfully at Nuremberg, Augsburg, Vienna and Middle Lane, he retired in the year of 1541 to Salzburg and died in a state of abject poverty in the hospital that town. If this strange charlatan found hundreds of admirers during his life, he found thousands after his death. A sect of Paracelsists sprang up in France and Germany to perpetuate the extravagant doctrines of their founder upon all the sciences and upon alchemy in particular. The chief leaders were Bodestein and Dorneus. The following is a summary of his doctrine founded upon the supposed existence of the philosopher's stone. It is worth preserving from its very absurdity and is altogether unparalleled in the history of philosophy. First of all, he maintained that the contemplation of the perfection of deity sufficed to procure all wisdom and knowledge, that the Bible was the key to the theory of all diseases, and that it was necessary to search in the Apocalypse to know the signification of magic medicine. The man who blindly obeyed the will of God, and who succeeded in identifying himself with the celestial intelligences, possessed the philosopher's stone, he could cure all diseases and prolong life as many centuries as he pleased, it being by the very same means that Adam and the antediluvians patriarchs prolonged theirs. Life was an emanation from the stars, the sun governed the heart and the moon the brain, Jupiter governed the liver, Saturn the gall, Mercury the lungs, Mars the bile and Venus the loins. In the stomach of every human being there dwelt a demon or intelligence that was a sort of alchemist in his way, and mixed in their due proportions in his crucible. 
the various elements that were sent into that grand laboratory, the belly. He was proud of the title of magician and boasted that he kept up a regular correspondence with Galen from hell, and that he often summoned Avicenna from the same regions to dispute with him on the false notions he had promulgated respecting alchemy, and especially regarding portable gold and the elixir of life. He imagined that gold could cure ossification of the heart, and, in fact, all diseases, if it were gold which had been transmuted from an inferior metal by means of the philosopher's stone, and if it were applied under certain conjunctions of the planets, the mere list of the works in which he advanced these frantic imaginings, which he called a doctrine, would occupy several pages. George Agricola this alchemist was born in the province of Misnia in 1494. His real name was Bauer, meaning a husbandman, which, in accordance with the common fashion of his age, he latinized into Agricola. From his early youth he delighted in the visions of the hermetic science. Ere he was sixteen, he longed for the great elixir which was to make him life for seven hundred years, and for the stone which was to procure him wealth to cheer him in his multiplicity of days. He published a small treatise upon the subject at Cologne in 1531, which obtained him the patronage of the celebrated Maurice Duke of Saxony. After practicing for some years as a physician at Joachimstal in Bohemia, he was employed by Maurice as a superintendent of the silver mines of Chemnitz. He led a happy life among the miners, making various experiments in alchemy while deep in the bowels of the earth. He acquired a great knowledge of metals, and gradually got rid of his extravagant notions about the philosopher's stone. The miners had no faith in alchemy, and they converted him to their way of thinking, not only in that, but in other respects. From their legends, he became firmly convinced that the bowels of the earth were inhabited by good and evil spirits, and that fire damp and other explosions sprang from no other causes than the mischievous propensities of the latter. He died in the year 1555, leaving behind him the reputation of a very able and intelligent man. End of chapter 4, part 5 Recorded by Daniele, October 2008